listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Welcome again. Just a little scene change here, you know. Uh, you're not mistaken. Uh, you are, you're stuck with me for the entirety of the day this morning. So, Pastor Clint was on deck to preach uh, this morning, but uh, he is quarantining with his family so I'm going to step in and pinch hit for him. Uh, I was telling my son, uh, six years old, little gardener, I was telling him um, that I was going to preach this weekend. And he said, preach? What's preach? I'm like, oh, man, I have failed as a parent and as a pastor. Uh, I, have, I have failed. So, you know, I start explaining to him, you know, buddy, it's when, when the church gathers together and we open the word of God. And he interrupts me. He said, oh, you mean a speech? I said, Sort of, it's kind of like a speech, but you know, uh, and I, I kept, you know, kept going. He interrupts me. He goes, "Like what Pastor Bill does?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Like what Pastor? Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, a speech." <laughs> okay, yes, I'm going to give a speech uh, this morning, and he says, "He says, Daddy, are you going to be as funny as Pastor Bill is? Because he's funny." I said, buddy, you know, not to disappoint you, but uh, daddy is not as funny as Pastor Bill, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll tell you up front, but listen, I did get a, a laugh out of you, so I feel like mission is accomplished today. I can at least let him know, hey, folks, folks laugh, so thank you for appeasing me. You know, it's really, uh, it's really a privilege to get to open the word uh, with you this morning. You know, I love, I love my job as uh, the worship pastor. I love to sing with you. I love to hear you sing. Uh, but there's, there's something really special about getting to, uh, to step here in this place and open the word of God and uh, see what God would say to us. Uh, so I'm grateful and I'm excited uh, to share what God has laid on my heart for us as we begin a new year, right? So speaking of that, happy new year to you. 2021, 2020 is in the past and a lot of you probably said amen in your minds, right? I doubt many of us are longing for the days of 2020 to return. But maybe you did. Maybe it was a great year. Uh, I was looking at the, the internet on, on Thursday. There's lots of funny things that were coming out about, you know, 2020 ending and 2021 starting. One of those things was, um, it said, dear 2021, I'm going to need a preview first. <laughs> so that was good. This, this is my favorite one, though. It was a side-by-side -side picture, right? And it had a timestamp on the left one. It was 11.59 p.m., you know, 2020. And the right one was 12 o'clock, 2021. And the left one, it looked like a picture from Armageddon. I mean, it was just utter destruction, darkness. And then this picture on the right was like the most lush, green fields, tall buildings. They went a little far because they had some... Uh, you know, flying cars, but hey, you never know. We might get it in 2021. 2020 was crazy enough, so uh, it, it, it's, it's funny for us to, to laugh at that stuff. Maybe you saw some uh, yourself, but uh, the reality is that there's a lot of people that are putting their hope in the turn of a calendar, right? A new year, a new start, as if 2021 is sure to be some idealized utopia just because it's not 2020, right? But the truth is, is that we have, we have no idea what 2021 will bring, right? And if you're, if you're not sure of that, just roll back 12 months ago, okay? 
we were here in this place. It was a Sunday after New Year's. Clint was preaching Romans 3.20, or uh, Ephesians uh, 3.20, I remember. Maybe you went home, you took a nap, did whatever you did. But I, I doubt that any of you were anticipating a global pandemic in January of, of last year. Maybe you were, wasn't on my radar. How about, um, how about anticipating this, the stockpiling of toilet paper because of said pandemic, right? I still don't get that. I'm like, I get gas, I get water, I get, you know, non-perishables. What? I, I don't get toilet paper. So, didn't see that one coming. Uh, and I can't say that my 2020 New Year's resolutions included binge-watching Netflix shows during a nationwide shutdown. I don't think that I had planned to, to do that. We just don't know. We didn't know what 2020 would bring, and we don't know what 2021 holds. But we do know who holds 2021. He's the same God who held 2020. Despite all of its challenges, he's the same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. My hope for us this morning is that as we open the Bible, God would help us to reorient our heads and our hearts around the gospel story and around the God of the gospel story, and that we would, we would cling to those things in 2021. We're gonna look at Psalm 107 this morning to do that, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. If you have it, if you don't, it'll be on the screen, but as you find it, uh, I, wanna, I wanna tell you about a man named John Newton. Maybe you're familiar with, with him. Uh, if not, let me give you a little bit of a little bit of history on John Newton. See, he was an English man uh, born in 1725. He had a pretty tumultuous life, at least for the first 23, 24 years. Uh, he was not really a likable guy. Uh, in fact, most people who knew him despised him. Uh, so much so that he was working on this uh, merchant ship. He was making a voyage from his homeland uh, to West Africa, and the crew and the captain of the ship decided to uh, go into port and send him into town to run an errand. And while he was gone, they left, never to return, right? This wasn't like, hey, we're gonna joke you, you know, we'll be back, it's no big deal. They went to the other side of the world. He would uh, eventually be picked up, though, by another ship that was returning back home uh, until this vessel that he was on, it was compromised in the midst of a terrible storm and it began to sink. And in that moment, John cried out to God to spare him, to save his life. And in a miraculous moment, the cargo of the ship shifts in such a way so as to lodge itself in the hull of this ship, preventing it from sinking and allowing it to, to drift ashore where they would all be rescued. That was March 9th, 1748. On March 10th, the next day, John is sitting on the shore of some island and he surrenders his life to the Lordship of Jesus because he knew in that moment when he cried out, God heard him and God delivered him. 
He would go on to be one of the most powerful evangelical preachers in British history. And he would pen hundreds of hymns, including uh, the most well-known hymn of the last two centuries, Amazing Grace. Little known fact about Amazing Grace, it was not originally titled Amazing Grace. Rather, it was called Faith's Review and Expectation. Now, I'm not really one to title sermons. I just prefer, you know, well, if we're gonna preach the Bible, we'll just call it Psalm 107. Uh, but if I, if I had to give a title to this sermon, uh, I would call it Faith's Review and Expectation because that's what Psalm 107 is. And interestingly enough, John Newton's story, that story of the ship sinking, can be seen in the verses of this psalm. So let's get started. A little background here, Psalm 107. It's the fifth and final book of the Psalter, right? The author's not known, but it is uh, widely accepted that this was written on the occasion of return from Babylonian exile. And as we'll see, it was to be used in the corporate gathering, the people of God. It's fairly easy to outline. It actually breaks down really beautifully into four sections. And so if you are a note taker, uh, these are for you, okay? If you are a note taker and you like alliteration, these are doubly for you and you are my people, all right? I'm gonna disappoint you later though, so don't, don't be too excited. Here's where we're going. Four sections. First one, expectation of the redeemed. The expectation of the redeemed. That's verses one through three. Then it's gonna move into the experience of the redeemed. Verses four through 32. Then into the explanation of the redeemed. 33 through 42. And finally, at closing verse 43, will give us an exhortation. An exhortation to the redeemed. And through these sections, the aim of this text is to call us to remember and rightly respond to the steadfast love of God. Remember and rightly respond to the steadfast love of God. For the last 10 years or so of ministry, uh, the definition for the worship of God uh, to which I have clung is, is this. Worship is the rhythm of revelation and response, right? God reveals and we respond. The aim of Psalm 107 is similar to that, but it has this nuance of remembrance. Specifically, steadfast love of God displayed in the salvation of his people. And while through the Christian life, God certainly continues to reveal more of himself to us, more of his nature and his character and his work. That's just part of the process of growing as a disciple. And we want to respond to that. We don't ever want to move beyond past revelation, specifically our salvation, right? We need this reminder because we should never graduate from or grow out of gratitude for our salvation. So with that said, let's jump in. Verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. We'll stop right there. This is the expectation of the redeemed. 
That is, if you have experienced God's redemption and deliverance, you are to say so. Right, we are to give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his goodness is revealed most clearly in his redemption and deliverance that he provides us out of his steadfast love. The psalmist gives this expectation to the people of God who, as I told you, they're, they're coming out of Babylonian exile, right? They literally just experienced deliverance, God's deliverance from a horrendous 70 years of captivity. And that captivity was brought on by uh, their, their own sin, their own doing. God's people had rejected the uh, sabbatical laws as well as the, the laws against idolatry. And the result of that was that God allowed the Babylonians to destroy, I mean, utterly destroy Jerusalem and to take them into exile. I could, I could deep dive here and it would paint an, an even more clear picture for us of how significant Psalm 107 is for this people at this time, but we'll save that for another day. You wanna read it, 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 26, it's great stuff. Suffice it to say this, it was bad. This was, was horrible. So horrible that uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he would write an entire book of songs of mourning and sorrow for the people to grieve. That would, that would be lamentations. So the psalmist gives this expectation to Israel and he gives it to us too, CBC. Lest we forget, we, we were in exile too. We were born into it, in fact, the Bible tells us. Held captive by sin, separated from God, dead in our trespasses. But God, two of the greatest words in all of scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Listen, if you have experienced the but God of the gospel, then you are expected to say so to the God of the gospel. It's what we do. It's how we respond to the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me show you one more thing in this. It's crucial for us to understand, and that is the theme in this passage, the steadfast love of the Lord. Maybe you have heard this before. That's a Hebrew word, hesed, Right? gotta say it from the back of your throat. I was gonna invite you to do it with me and then I realized how much saliva we would, you know, we just don't wanna go there. Hesed, it means uh, loving kindness or loyal love or trustworthy or unmerited kindness, which we would call grace or faithful love in action. I could go on because there's literally 10 words that theologians use to, to describe this because they can't. There's not one that can sufficiently define the steadfast love of God. It expresses loyalty to his covenant, love for his people, and faithfulness to keep his promises. One author would say it like this. It's not merely love, but loyal love not merely kindness, but dependable kindness, not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. 
prophet Isaiah, he spoke of it this way. Isaiah 54, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, with hesed, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. Lamentations 3, 22, you heard Payne read this a moment ago. The Lord's hesed, the Lord's steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Even the Lord reveals himself in this way, right? When he shows up to Moses in Exodus 34, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says it about himself. It's who I am. Aren't you thankful for that? That kind of steadfast love? The psalmist would go on to tell us that we would be wise to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's keep moving. Verse three. And he gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south. We'll stop here again. For the original audience, this would have been very specific, right? They would have called to mind specific instances of God delivering them and gathering them in from each of these directions. To the east, it would have been Babylon, what we just talked about. To the west, it would have been the Philistines. To the north, it would have been Assyria and Syria and the captivity there. And then to the south, it would have been that great story recorded in Exodus, the deliverance from the Egyptians. For us, uh, verse three reminds us of a few things. First, that there is no corner of God's creation where he cannot reach to redeem. Secondly, there is no situation or circumstance in our life that is irredeemable. We're gonna see that in just a moment, even deeper. And lastly, I don't want us to miss this, this missional element of this. Make no mistake about it, God is gathering for himself a people from every corner of his creation, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Why? Because that is what a good God, full of loyal love, unmerited kindness, and committed affection, that's what he does. So this is our expectation. As the redeemed of God, if you are the redeemed of God, you are to say so. With this expectation in mind, we, let's move to, to the experience of the redeemed, all right? These are the reasons why the redeemed say so. The next 28 verses, there's gonna be four testimonies from people who have experienced the redemption of God. And in these four testimonies, there's a pattern for those who've experienced the redemption of God, kind of this cadence of redemption, if you will. It's this, it starts with a dilemma, which leads to desperation or a cry to God, which leads to deliverance, right, redemption. And this is where I'll fail you literary people, or praise, results in praise, right? There just wasn't a better word, so dilemma, Desperation, deliverance, resulting in praise. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the experience of the redeemed. The first one, beginning in verse four, the wanderer. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. 
hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. When they cried to the Lord in their, in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The picture painted here is of a people that are longing to find safety and shelter and security and satisfaction. And that is uh, the reality for the people of God at this time. Uh, certainly they would uh, again think about Babylon. Uh, you know, that's where their, their homes were destroyed, their city was ruined and their families were broken apart. But also they would have called to mind the exodus from Egypt and those 40 years of wandering in the desert. Let's listen to what they said. This is a little excerpt from this story. Numbers 21. And the people of God spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They had experienced this firsthand, this wandering this homelessness, and it led them to desperation. And so they cry out, cry out to the Lord, and he delivers, he redeems. And what do they do? They thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his chesed, for his wondrous works to the children of man. While most likely, most of us, uh, we cannot relate to physically being homeless. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to not have a family. We don't know what it's like to wander in a desert. But the reality is, is we have experienced this spiritually. We enter into this world as wanderers, working hard to find any sense of safety and security and satisfaction. And all the while, our souls are fainting within us. We have a dilemma, too. We read about it, Ephesians 2, just a moment ago. It's that we are dead in our sin. Our souls are fainting. And in the moment when we are awakened to the reality that our souls are fainting and our efforts to find those things are futile, we cry to the Lord in our trouble. And what does he do? He delivers us from our distress. He satisfies our longing souls, our hungry souls. He fills with what? Good things. Goodness. Why? I knew my voice wouldn't hold up. Why? Because he's good. Remember verse one. He's good. Catch this. He satisfies our souls with himself because he is enough. He's our safety and our security and our satisfaction. And CBC, when we experience that kind of redemption, the only proper response is thanks and praise to God for his steadfast love. We're gonna see it. We're gonna see it three more times. Let's look now at the second and third testimonies. We're gonna do these together because they share a commonality that, that tie them, and I wanna point that out here in a moment, so... Verse 10, this is the prisoner. 
Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts, down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. That's the prisoner. Let's look at the patient. Verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed food of any kind. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, tell of his deeds and songs of joy. The commonality in these two testimonies is that these experiences are a result of their own sin. They are in this dilemma because they were disobedient. They were dumb. Prisoners, enslaved now, and a patient is on his deathbed. Both of these stories fit into Israel, uh, Israel's history, really at, at any time, pre-exilic, post-exilic. Because they had a tendency to forsake the Lord often. And, and it always resulted in them living with the consequences of their sin. And despite their unfaithfulness, what do they do? In desperation, they have the audacity to cry out to the Lord that they forsook. And then what did he do? He rejected them and he despised them. No, that's not what he did. Look at verse 13 and 19. He delivered them from their distress, the same thing that he's been doing, the same thing that he will do. He sets the captive free and he heals the hurting. See, their devious decisions and their lack of devotion could not circumvent the deliverance of God. It could not change the steadfast love of the Lord. It was true for them and it's true for us. Even after we have acknowledged the lordship of Jesus in our life, the temptation to say yes to sin doesn't cease, amen? I know it doesn't for me. The opportunity for unfaithfulness to the Lord is as readily available to us as it was to the Israelites. And despite our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Because when we find ourselves in this dilemma, living in the consequences of our own sin, we can cry out in desperation to the Lord, it's called repentance, and God delights in it. And because of his steadfast love, he will deliver us. Remember 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All you have to do is cry out. And when we experience 
the redemption of the Lord in this way, we can join with the prisoner and the patient and say, thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love, for your wondrous works to the children of man. We'll make it personal for us. Thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love, for your wonderful works to me. God's extravagant grace and mercy poured out. I want you to look at verse 22 with me, uh, specifically because the psalmist, he starts to expand this idea of, of praise, the response here. And I wanna point something out for us. 22 says, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. There's two things for us in this. First, they are to present a sacrifice of thanksgiving. First, it was that they would say so, which is still true, but now there's this, this action that's called for, this do so. Bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So the Israelites, they would have marched in with their animal, put them on the altar, Sacrifices as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. And thankfully, we're not doing that in this place. But a sacrifice is still required. A thank offering is still required. And you know what that is? That is us. It is our lives, right? Paul would say it in this way in Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations would say true worship. That's our offering of thanksgiving, our life. Second, once you see this, that they're told to tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Well, this one might sting. The person who experiences this kind of redemption is not a back row Baptist, okay? They're not a, a, a whispering worshiper. This man, this woman, you and me, if this is your story, it's you and me. With every fiber of our being should sing with joy for our salvation. Not just here in this place. Even as you go, it's what is called for when you've encountered that kind of love, that kind of mercy, that kind of faithfulness. Now for the fourth and final testimony here in this section, these are the sailors, okay? Let me walk through this. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Very briefly, this experience is unique 
in that it is not the result, in any way, the result of the consequences of sin. You simply have people who are going about their business, literally, right? Their business on the water. And there comes a storm. And the storm is brought about by God himself. Did you catch that? It was God who raised the waves. You say, Gardner, why does God do that? I don't know, ask Pastor Bill. I'm kidding. I don't, I don't, I don't have every answer to every question, neither does Pastor Bill. All I can say is that God's ways are higher than our minds can comprehend. And sometimes he uses the storms of this life to get our attention off of ourself and back onto him. Trying to understand the mind of God. I heard this analogy one time. It's like this, like going out to Tybee Island with a solo cup and trying to fill, fill that cup with the entirety of the ocean, 16 ounces. Impossible, you cannot do it. But I would rather live in a world where God is completely in control and I don't understand than live in a world where God is impotent and I understand most things or some things or everything. Here's what the, the psalmist wants us to rest in. It's not so much to wrestle with that, but to rest in this. The God who has the power to bring the storm is the God who has the power to still the storm. The testimony doesn't end with God raising up the storm and the men perishing. That's not this story. Like John Newton, in their dilemma, they cry out in desperation. And once again, God delivers them from their distress. Maybe this is you. Maybe you see yourself in, in this situation. You know, there's a storm, a mess, and it's not your own doing, it's not the result of your sin. And you are being beaten by the waves, tossed to and fro in the storm of life. Maybe it's a broken relationship, maybe it's fear or depression or anxiety, maybe it's a lost job, maybe it's financial trouble. Maybe it's just loneliness or an illness. Maybe it's all of it. Here's what you can do. Cry out to the Lord in your desperation. And know that he hears you. And know that he will deliver you. That deliverance may not look like you want it to look, it may not come when you want it to come. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The deliverance will come. These are the experiences of the redeemed. People who are in a dilemma, crying out to the Lord in desperation, and then they're delivered, redeemed from their distress, responding in thanks and praise. This is our story over and over and over again. And then we move into this third section of the psalm and it, it gives us an explanation for the redeemed, okay? This is the 
This is the how and the why of the experiences of the redeemed. How can God enter into a situation that seems impossible? I mean, it is. These people are hopeless. There's, there's no hope here. So how can God enter into that and do what is impossible? This is how. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna summarize this. Nine verses. God is sovereign. That's what those nine verses tell us. God is sovereign. He steps into the impossible situation. He does the impossible because the creator of the cosmos is absolutely in control of every aspect of his creation all the time. And Psalm 115 will tell us that he does whatever he pleases for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. This all-powerful, all-knowing, always-present, sovereign God is ruling and reigning. That's how. He's in control. So why does he do it? Because the greatest glory that God can give to himself and the greatest good that he can do for his people is to redeem us. And he gets more and more and more and more glory when the saints are faithful to that expectation to say so. Every time we say so, he gets more glory. Lastly, let's look at verse 43. This is, this is the exhortation to the redeemed. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist leaves us with this charge because he knows that if we consider the steadfast love of the Lord, when we remember our redemption, we'll be compelled to respond in thanks and praise. When we remember our redemption, we can't help but rightly respond. Because when you come face to face with that kind of steadfast love, a steadfast love that, that takes 10 words to kind of sort of describe, you can't. You can't not respond. You can't not talk about it. You can't not sing about it. Let me give just three, three practical thoughts here. How do we apply this to our life this week? First and foremost, I just want you to stop and think about God's steadfast love. Stop and think about how much God loves you. If you have a hard time comprehending that, consider the fact that he loves you to the extent that he gave his only son to come and live a life that you couldn't live and die a death that you deserved, that you might have life, that I might have life. Remember your redemption. Secondly, no matter your situation or your circumstance, wherever you maybe fit into this, wanderer or the prisoner or patient or the sailor at sea, or, or if you're like me, you, you know, you can touch all, all four of them at some point. No matter your, your situation, your circumstance, know that God is able 
and he's enough. Know that he's able to deliver you and that when he does, he's able to fulfill you. His steadfast love will be enough for you. And thirdly, simply let your story and your situation lead to songs of praise. You say, Gardner, I am not a singer. That's not my thing. Well, are you saved? Because if you are, you are a singer. And here's how I know. 50 times, over 50 times in the Bible, the people of God are commanded to sing to the Lord. Not suggested, not invited, commanded. The king's gonna get his praise. So, if you are of the redeemed of the Lord, then you are a singer. You may not be a good singer, but that's okay. He didn't ask for that, right? He's not asking for a sweet melody. He's asking for a joyful noise. And if you are redeemed, then you have the joy of the Lord in you. You have the joy of your salvation in you. And if you can open your mouth and utter anything, you can make a joyful noise. And so maybe, maybe that's just a challenge for you, particularly when you come in here. You say, ah, this is not my thing, man. Sorry, it's no, it's no offense to you. That's all, I'm not bothered by it. You miss out. You miss out. The people of God miss out to be edified because what we do in this place when we sing is both vertical and horizontal. And so I'd invite you to let your story, let your situation lead you to songs of praise. Let me close with, with this amazing grace. Remember that? This is where we, where we kind of began or as it was first called, faith's review and expectation. They're one and the same. Faith's review is considering and remembering the steadfast love of the Lord. Faith's expectation is to say so, to respond to that steadfast love. And a really simple way to do that is to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like me like you. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And I want us to do that. I want us to do that. I want, I want you to stand. I'm gonna pray for us. And, and we're gonna use that. We're gonna use the words of John Newton to rejoice in God's steadfast love towards us. Let me pray. Then we'll sing. Father, you are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithless. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 107. God, I pray that it would take root in our hearts in these moments and in the days ahead and that we might be marked as a people and as a congregation by extravagant thanksgiving and praise because of our redemption. God, I pray that we would never grow callous to it or tired of it, that we never graduate from it. Make it sweet, God, make it sweet again. Pray in Jesus' name.